When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin, the auto editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. And my name is Ben. I hang out with Scott here on our show, High Speed Stuff. Scott, I got to tell you, um, it's almost the end of the year. I love, I love doing this show with you and I love all the different stuff we've covered, man. Um, but you know, the one thing that gets me every time we have an episode where a listener writes in, now you see, I've got a lot of notes here, but every time we have a listener suggest something, it, it usually gets me just fired up and it's so much better than the, the ideas that I've had. And so I know we've got a lot of stuff today. We've got a lot of stuff we wanted to handle, but is there a way we could do a listener mail episode today? Of course we can do a listener mail episode. In fact, we had a really good one to, to do uh, today. We've got um, Denny from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, who has written in and requested that we talk about um, the, uh, the the war effort, I guess, the, the World War II effort that the U- United States automobile industry put forth uh, to supply tanks and planes and rifles and every other thing right. that they needed for the military Excellent uh, during, during World War II. Yeah. Um, so, Denny, this one, you know, I guess this one's not dedicated to you, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's your, it's your show or your topic today. So, um, Denny, like he works in a, um, works in an engine shop in, um, Williamsport mm-hmm. and they actually make, um, reciprocating aircraft engines there. And for a time, he knows that, um, that particular company went back to, I'm reading his mail here, went back to the 1800s where, uh, Demerset or Demer, Demersest mad bicycles and sewing machines that they made bicycles and sewing machines there. Later they built auto engines and they put them in, in vehicles that you probably heard of Auburn, Checker, Cord, yeah. um, Gardner, Locomobile, Duesenbergs. The engines came from there. And, um, he says he also knows that during World War II, the plant was used to build, uh, truck engines for the military vehicles. So um, he's interested in this World War II effort uh, by the U.S. auto industry. So I think that's what we'll talk about. Yeah, let's Wayne World back a second. 
And here we are at uh, World War II, which is already for since the U.S. involvement, which I think um, we officially declared war December 8th, right? The day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. We declared war on Japan. Everything changed because the average, uh, the average U.S. citizen increasingly saw the war effort impact their life in terms of uh, jobs, right? Uh, in terms of supplies mm-hmm. and even in terms of uh, their transportation situation or where they could go, or what they could do. Uh, so this is, you know, we see a lot of films these days or we hear a lot in documentaries about the way this changed the average person's life, but we rarely explore the way this changed the average company, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think this is, that's why I think this is such a great, a great topic. Scott, you're the expert. Where do you want to start on well, this? Well, I guess we had better start by saying that there were a lot more, it was a lot more than just the auto industry that was involved in this, of course. Right. But, um, the auto industry played a, a key role in manufacturing vehicles for the military. And not just vehicles, but they also did, um, you know, rifles and, and shells and engines and armor and, uh, ball bearings and all kinds of things. Even so just fabrication. Propellers, um, just yeah. a little bit of everything. Yeah. They, they created something from nothing because they were producing vehicles up until that point. They switched over to the war effort, and it was sometimes, you know, within a matter of months that they're producing something completely different than what they had ever produced before. I mean, they're making bombers instead of trucks, or they're making uh, tanks instead of engines, or they're, you know, something like that. Uh, creating rifles in their machine shop rather than uh, making axles for, for cars. Um, just dramatic difference in production, but um, they, they accommodated it, and uh, everything I mean, it worked out really well. You'll, you'll find out later that, you know, these production numbers are just astounding. You know, the amount of material that they provided for the war effort and, um, just how useful some of these materials were. Before we get into the nuts and bolts numbers, though, mm-hmm. the first question, the most immediate question would, of course, be why are, why are these companies chosen, you know, to, to shift their production and, and why and how, I guess. Well, I want to say that it's because they had the workforce to do it and they had the facilities built and they had, um, you know, the, the idea of this linear production line that, you know, they could bring a tank from one end to the other and, and you know, raw materials come in one side, well, roughly raw materials come in one right. side and, uh, you know, a tank comes out the other side. But honestly, this was completely different for them. They did have to retool. They did have to, um, you know, they changed their workforce because the eligible males were off fighting the war. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you were finding uh, women and elderly um, now working in factories where they hadn't before. Um, so there's this dramatic shift in the in the labor force as well. Um, but they did have, you know, a good start. They had, uh, let's say they had a truck and bus facility somewhere and they were going to build tanks there. Well, where else are you going to find a place that, that large to start building tanks? You're not going to be able to find just, you know, a, a I mean, what you think is a big building isn't really a big building. We're right. trying to build something like a bomber. So um, some companies did build build facilities in order to do this, um, you know, because you can't make a, you can't just assume that you've got the space to build a Ooh. bomber. Um, some places did, some places didn't. They, you know, depending on what they were making, what, what they uh, what they were not instructed to, but what they were requested to build. Yeah. Um, so some companies built buildings, others others had. Facilities in place, but they all did require some retooling. And it makes sense economically from the government standpoint. If there is already an infrastructure in place mm-hmm. and the use of that infrastructure can be acquired through, I, I imagine through contracts mm-hmm. is probably how this occurred. Yeah. Then it, it just makes, you're saving so much money 
by doing that, provided the private contractor is competent, you're saving so much more money um, than you would be able to save if you just built out of whole cloth your own building. True. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, just one quick example here. I'm kind of skipping yeah. ahead, but because uh, we're going to go through the, the, I guess, what was considered the big three, you know, the, the U.S. big three. Yeah. Um, okay. But uh, skipping ahead here, I'll just mention the Chrysler uh, contract. In 1940, they actually started building tanks. They were going to sell them in um, in the summer of that year. Um, so they had a contract with the defense, a Department of Defense for $54.5 million to construct and staff a tank building plant. Um, so this is like just an incredible contract at the time. You're talking 1940, $54.5 million. Wow. Um, just to give you an idea of the difference in production, or, I mean, sorry, the difference in dollar amount of what, you know, previously had been spent on something like this. Um, the second largest tank contract had been for only $11 million. So this is five times that amount that they're giving to Chrysler. So they've got great confidence in Chrysler that, you know, they're going to be able to produce what they want, you know, as much as they want and mm. for the price that they need to. To one so, company. Yeah, exactly. And and that wow. goes on across the board here. You'll find that, um, you know, the, the government contracts with uh, Ford, GM, and Chrysler are uh, are enormous. Wait, wait yeah. till you find out the, the dollar amounts when we get to the end of these. But we can go through these one one at a time if you want. And yes. I'll just make it really brief. But um, like I said, we'll just skip through. I think we'll start with Ford here. Yeah, let's um, start with Ford. Apparently, and these, this is coming from HistoryNet.com, um, Ford was known as a pacifist, and he opposed our entry into World War II. Ooh. So um, people found it kind of surprising that he did agree to build airplane engines for the British government. Um, he thought that you know that was a worthwhile cause. He something that he could do. He could swing into you know war production mode, I guess. Um, but then the so the the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor is what inspired him to do this. Um, he decided that you know it's definitely worth it, and he went kind of all out on this. He built a he built a um, a plant that was to produce B twenty four bombers um, on an assembly line that was a mile long in uh, in Willow Run. Uh, Willow Run is in Michigan, it's, um, near Belleville area. That that area. Um, there's an airport there now, as a matter of fact. Um, and the first bomber rolled off the line in 1942. So, really, um, I think he's producing several hundred aircraft each month. At this, at this factory. It's a mile long, a mile long. That's to build a B-24 bomber, and they made hundreds of them each month. So um, it's unbelievable. I mean, so it went from engines straight to the, the bomber, the whole thing. Exactly. And it says, by the end of the war, Ford had built 86,865 complete aircraft, um, wow. plus, plus 57,851 airplane engines, thousands of engine superchargers and generators, and 4,000 291 military gliders. So you get an idea of the scope of this project. Yeah. And this is in about, uh, three, well, this is within, within three years because he started production in 42. Mm. You know, because end of 41 is when the, the Pearl Harbor attack happened. Did I say end of 41? End of 41. So in 42 is when they started this production. And uh, by, you know, in those three years, those are the numbers that you're talking about. That's amazing. You know, there's no dollar amounts listed there, but um, pretty incredible. And especially when you consider. You know, we could do that a whole different episode on uh, the eccentricities of the good Mister Ford. Yeah, but it is it is interesting that he did such a a complete one eighty. Yeah, well, he I mean he felt it was a just cause, so he did it. Yeah. And they, they you know it even says here that you know people that are his detractors say that you know he did a good thing here. You know he did the right thing. I'm just eighty six thousand, so. man. That makes me think that they that we should have some. That that <laughs> know, stuff works, bomber. That's a, that's amazing, isn't it? That's a really that's a, that's incredible. I mean, to build, 
Yeah, it's 86,000, almost 87,000 complete aircraft. I'm telling you, man, we need a bomber. Well, maybe Chrysler can give us a better well, price. I already told you about the uh, tank building for Chrysler. Right? Yeah, and, I'm, uh, I'm more into bombers, but <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> so, hey, well, actually, you know what? Um says here, now I'm going from allpar.com. Okay. Um, and this has got a lot of Chrysler information, by the way, if you want to find a good Chrysler site, allpar.com. Um, it's not a plug. That's just a... They didn't pay us. good. No, no, not at all. I, that's what I mean. I, I go to them all the time for information. Um, they actually built, um, they contracted a lot of different military vehicles, anti-aircraft guns, things like that. The Martin B-26 bomber and B-29 Super Fortress, as well as bomb fuses, shells, domestic items like field, uh, field kitchens and refrigerators. Mm. So they made a lot of, uh, you know, just appliances as well. Yeah. Um, but again, they made these, uh, these big bombers, these, the B-26 and the B-29 Super Fortress. The Super Fortress yeah. is a crazy one. It is, yeah. I know, and it says that by the end of the war, Dodger produced 18,413 B-29 engines and approximately 500,000 military trucks. Um, so they had amassed over $3.4 billion in U.S. governmental contracts and uh, for that helped protect the ground and air forces. So, so – Talking, billion. we're getting into the billions now, and, and that's back when a billion was still a large number. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's back when a billion meant something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. I wonder what that is, you know, extrapolated to today. So, oh, I could get up. back with you on the calculations on that. But before we do something like that, let's go to GM. GM. Okay. GM had a huge hand in the war effort. Um, no way I'm going to read all these numbers. There's a, there's a long list here, um, but. Um, they they actually delivered more than twelve billion dollars worth of goods uh, to the military. Hmm. So twelve billion dollars is what you're talking about just for, just for General Motors, you know Chevrolet division that that area. Yeah. Um, twelve billion dollars, and the list here is long. I mean, it's it's uh, the list of the products. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll quickly go through it. I'm not yeah, going to read run, all of them, but um, two hundred six thousand airplane engines. 198,000 diesel engines for tanks and landing craft, um, airplane propellers, gyroscopes, 38,000 tanks, tank destroyers, and armored vehicles. Wow. Um, 854,000 trucks, including the amphibious duck vehicles that you've seen, the uh, D-U-K. Yeah, yeah. Um, the kind that you can drive right into the water. Mm-hmm. Um, 190,000 cannons, 1,900,000 machine guns and submachine guns, um, almost... Thirty-nine or three million nine hundred thousand electric motors, um, three hundred and sixty million ball bearings, um, and and roller bearings, one hundred nineteen million shells, um, and cartridge cases, almost forty million cartridge cases. Wow. So overall, this is a grand total. This whole list is five hundred and forty million pieces of military equipment were were built by General Motors uh, for the war effort. And Five, this is 540 million pieces. And that's, and that's including ball bearings and shells sure, and everything sure. like that. But, um, I mean, see huge numbers like, you know, almost 2 million machine guns. See, that's the one I was going back to. And, and I'm sorry to interrupt here, oh, Scott, but no. if you think about it, what's scary about that number is, um, <clears throat> I'd be interested to know, maybe later we could look into what, what type of machine gun it was, but mm-hmm. the odds are probable that there could, there could still be people using those machine guns. It could be. Yeah, very well. I mean, a lot of people, that's you know, the thing is they got to keep them in perfect running shape. They oil them. They mm. they uh, they clean them. They use them regularly so that they continue to work. Um, 
Well, not just collectors, but that stuff. I mean, I I think GM's a a good company. Mm -hmm. I think they build things to last, but it's scary when you think of guns that are built to last and then so many things get lost, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I I agree. I agree. But yeah, you're right. Good, good company. And they, uh, they do some good work. Millions of dollars, billions of dollars, billions of dollars. I can't, I can't wrap my head around the enormity of this. Now, Fisher Body is another uh, company that, um, Fisher Body is a, well, it's just a, I don't know about how to describe exactly what Fisher Body does, but I'm say Fisher Body. Okay. They're a uh, coach builder from a long time ago, and they, they continue to make bodies for vehicles for uh, General Motors for a long time. I don't know if they had other interests or not. Is that why the there's different numbers for engines versus uh, trucks or tanks in some of our stats here? Could be. Yeah, it could right. be. Um, but the Fisher Body numbers are incredible as well because – Fisher Body, uh, by 1945, they had delivered 21,000 tanks, um, 10, uh, major sub-assemblies for 10,000 B-25 and B-29 bombers, so the components that go into those mm-hmm. bombers, uh, 422,000 aircraft instruments, 3,400 anti-aircraft guns, 16,000 gun breech housings, you know, it just goes on and on, 550,000 shells, um, Diesel engines, submarines, experimental aircraft, just all kinds of things. So wow. um, that shows you that you know even these smaller, not mm-hmm. spinoffs, but smaller divisions were were uh, providing as well. So this this war effort for World War II is in, intense. Yeah. Um, and of course, how could I not mention the Jeep? Uh, you have to mention the Jeep, and I'll do it real quickly because um, the initial request for Jeep from the U.S. Army is only uh, they only wanted they didn't request just the Jeep; they wanted a vehicle. They didn't know what it was yet at the, at the time. So, they said we want it to do these things. Exactly. They, it had to uh, had to be four wheel drive. Had to have a quarter ton payload, and it had to weigh less than thirteen hundred pounds. And it had to be developed within forty nine days. What? That was the limit. Yeah, forty nine wow. days was the development time. So two companies, um, American Bantam Car and Willys Overland, um, were the only two that uh, there were one hundred and thirty five companies that were invited to make these uh, mm-hmm. make these vehicles like that, to do request for funding yeah exactly proposal. and uh, so 47 days later uh, Bantam and Willys provided actually Bantam provided a vehicle Willys was ready but they had a problem with um, axle parts I think and um, said that they you know they needed a little bit more time they got an extension and that also bought them time to watch the Bantam being tested <laughs> and, what, what, and what it lacked and it, it, it provided you know I guess it performed well it lacked power. So they, they knew what it needed, they needed to do to provide, you know, the, the military with what they mm. needed exactly. Ford also produced a vehicle, um, trying to think of what that was, the Pygmy. And the Pygmy, you know, Pygmy was also accepted, um, didn't do too well. I, obviously yeah. the Jeep hang, you know, hung in there and they produced, well, you, they're still producing you Jeep. You can still buy a Jeep today. Yeah, you can. They made the CJ, which is the civilian Jeep, mm. uh, shortly after that. It lasted a long time, the CJ. And, uh, now, you know, I don't know what uh, body designation they're into. TJ probably beyond that. Can you say um, the TJ was Canadian? I think I think so. Yeah, yeah. I I, I kind of confuse on that. You know the the uh, acronyms that go along with that are the codes for the there body. are a lot of acronyms. Well, yeah. well, for the body codes of the of the vehicles, yeah. But um, of course, you know Jeep is still around. It's yeah. still a I think it's a trademark of Chrysler. And we also have to mention um, to anyone typing listener mail out now, the Hummer and the Humvee. Oh yeah, of course. That's that's another story mm-hmm. that that is similar. But before we, we close out with this, we should briefly hit upon what happened when the war was over. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, they're not, well, are, are they still make, are the big three still making, uh, military components? 
You know, I don't know if they're still making, I don't know if there's any division that's making components still. I know that in, uh, in Detroit, there are some, there are tank manufacturing facilities. Still. Oh, right, right. But, and I know that I've always heard this rumor that there's a, there was a truck and bus company that was across the street from where I grew up. Uh-huh. And, um, I always heard that there was a certain amount of time that would take them to, to completely switch over to tank production. Um, that they kept the tooling from the tank production at the time, you know, from World War II. That's or, probably just smart. I, I think, business. I, you know, I honestly believe it. I honestly believe that they could have switched over production and, you know, whatever it was is it's now like 48 hours. If they already have all the machines and ready in place, all they have to do is strip out the old or the new, mm-hmm. put in the old and, uh, and completely switch over to tank production. So I, I had heard that in the past. I don't know if it's true or not, but, um, I don't think anybody's still making war implements. Uh, any auto manufacturers are still making war mm-hmm. implements. Um, but in 45, when the war had, was officially over, um, they did go back to production. And so you could find very few, um, U.S. cars that were built during the war time, uh, during the war years, oh, sure, I guess. Yeah. So those, those are extremely rare. And a lot of times they had a military purpose. They were ambulance vehicles or they were, uh, you know, used trucks that were used in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much from 1942 to 1945, there was very, very little or no auto production going on. So if you see a car, if you're in the market for a used car and you see one from that era, <laughs> look just, twice. Just be cautious. I mean, there's yeah. some around there, but you know, around, but you know, they may be an ambulance. They may be um, a panel van that had another mm. purpose or, um, you know, I don't know, a truck that had a military purpose as well. So, uh, you know, they're available. Yeah. So there you go, Denny. Um, hope we answered or gave you a little bit more uh, information rather about, about the automotive companies during World War II and you know what, Scott? I like that listener mail uh, a lot. Do you want to try to do one other one? Sure, why not? Okay, Scott, our listener mail today comes from Brian, who is currently residing in Hong Kong. And Brian is writing in uh, for our recent episode on five reasons not to buy a hybrid. And he says that while a lot of power generated in the U.S. is cold, Coal pot, excuse me, coal fired. It's important to note that when you power things with these sources, you are able to centralize the pollution source. So, um, if we, his argument is switching to electric vehicles, even if they are coal powered, puts all of the pollution in a, a concentrated area where it's easier to manage it. And then he also points out that he, um, let's see, where, where does he point this out? Sorry. Easier to manage, huh? Yeah. Okay, when like maybe the uh, uh, the smokestack filters that uh, that filter out contaminants. Yeah, like, like the scrubbers. Uh, okay, gotcha. and then he also adds that he would buy a hybrid for non financial reasons any day, but he doesn't have to because he lives in Hong Kong, which has great public transit. Ah, you know another point that I remember from another. Uh, it's a good point, but I, I remember another point from another listener that said that um, you know we're talking about plug-in hybrids, really, right? And uh, right. that's important to remember too. You know, the, we're talking about cars that actually take electricity from the wall. Mm-hmm. So, um, so a non-plug-in, yeah, it would would work on. Of course, that would be a different argument. Yeah, because so. you're using gasoline, which charges a generator, which then provides power to the battery. You're never plugging it into the wall and using straight electricity from the uh, well from the uh, the outlet or the socket. Um, so different, you know, need to compare apples to apples, I guess. Yeah, completely say. different uh, can of worms. Yeah. Box of cats. Sure. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> making things like up. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's it for us today. Everybody, thanks again for listening. Uh, Scott, do you have anything you want to add here? Oh, no, that's it. All right. Well, all I can add is our email address, highspeedstuff at howstuffworks.com. Email us and we'll talk to you next time.
Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero. 